Good morning, Emmanuel Church, in all your parts. It's great to be with you uh, on such a hot weekend. We packed our Arctic gear because we were coming north. And, uh, do you remember there used to be a series on the telly called Our Friends in the North? Uh, I don't feel like you're our friends in the north, I'm sorry. You're our family in the north. And uh, it's been a great weekend, and we've had a, a real joy to meet with some of you yesterday, uh, and uh, to see you all and to be part of what you're doing, it's just wonderful. The band were superb this morning, great to hear the testimonies and see baptisms, there's life, and, and God is doing great things here in Durham, and he's going to do so much more. We're on the verge of so much more that God is going to do in, not in somebody else's lifetime, We're no longer digging foundations for the future. God is doing it right now in our lifetime around the world. And as we're worshipping, I I looked up and I saw these windows. And and I felt God say, "Um, are they windows? And his question to you this morning is, are they windows? Are are they for Emmanuel Church to look out at the world and let light in? Uh, And you probably think that's why they were designed. You who like architecture, that's why you put windows in, isn't it? But then I looked at them and God said, they don't look like windows to me, they look like doors. Why would you put a door halfway up a wall? And, and, and then I just suddenly got this impression. God was saying, you can leave by those doors today. They are heavenly doors. They're not, you're not going to look at the kingdom of heaven anymore, longingly out the window. Emmanuel Church is going to be a people who can leave those doors and go out into the world in a, in a heavenly kingdom way that is different to going out of these doors. Don't try and leave physically out of those doors. I meant in your spirit, in, your, in who you are in Christ. You are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms, and those are your doors now, Emmanuel. Those are your doors. They are kingdom doors out into Durham. And uh, oh, there's so many things he's been saying to me the last uh, 24 hours. Uh, it may seem that we come at things from quite a few different angles, but bear with me because I think somehow they're going to get woven together. They've certainly been woven together so far by the worship, which the, the, the continual theme to me through the worship was that of you know dying uh, and being raised. And the theme of baptism, the, the, the being buried and raised again with Christ. There's a whole thing that God wants to do this morning, I believe, about reminding us that we, we have died and our lives are now hidden with Christ in God, as the Scriptures tell us. And that's really hard to get our heads around, isn't it? Because when we become Christians, so often well-meaning people say, I give your life to Jesus and everything's going to be fine from now on. I actually think that what we should have said to, uh, particularly to Andy, as he's come to this new faith, a new church this morning, and any of you are at that point in your lives, is a government health warning with becoming a Christian. Because actually, Christian only gets mentioned three times in the New Testament. Do you know that? The word is only three times in the New Testament. And all three times, it's a derogatory term. All three times, it's like a mocking term. When Paul was taken before King Agrippa, he says, you expect me to become a Christian, do you? In other words, Christian just meant little Christ. This this bunch of idiots who who are like little Christ. It It was a mocking term. And it was a mocking term where, where it's used in, in uh, Acts 11. And we're, and we're told that in Antioch, the followers, the disciples, it were, which is what they called themselves, 
they call themselves disciples or the family of God or people of God or um, they call themselves followers of the way. Jesus, the way, the truth and the life, they were followers of the way. They'd never been called Christians amongst themselves. And in Antioch, for the first time, somebody went, huh, you little Jesuses. And that's when they got, and that's what it says in, 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 in Acts 11. And then later on, as I said, in Acts, in uh, Agrippa, Paul comes before him. He says, you expect me to be one of those little Jesuses, do you? And then in Philippians, in the context of baptism, it talks about people who follow Christ and says, that uses the word once, those, you know, they will, they'll persecute you because you're Christians. I think it's quite sad for us as a, as a movement of, of believers that we've latched on to the derogatory term and we've lived by it ever since. I, I'm, not, I'm not convinced it's a good term for us. And people say, are you a Christian? And at, at the sort of Reformation time, um, or certainly the evangelical revival, people used to start saying, oh, well, yeah, you're a Christian because you grew up in the church. Like Adiola said, I grew up in the church. Uh, and people grew up in the church and therefore they were Christians. Or they grew up in, in the Arab countries and they were Muslims. Or they grew up in Israel and they were Jews. And it was that kind of thing. You, you had a, a family sort of connection to some world faith. If you're born in northern India, you're a Sikh. If you're born over the border, you're a Muslim. If you're born in southern India, you're a Hindu. It's that kind of thing. And so we, we start talking about people who are born in this Christianized country. <laughs> Don't feel very Christianized, does it? And you could probably look at all the world faiths and think, Phew, you know, they, they seem to have a lot to offer. If, if you look at some faith system. And so we call ourselves Christians. And it, it tends to be this thing of, oh great, Andy's become a Christian. Done deal. But that's not what Christians believed. When, when, in, the, in the scriptural times, people, what they believed was that they were people who decided to follow the way of Jesus. Follow Jesus. Walk with Jesus. Be part of what Jesus was doing. That they would go and begin a new life in him. And, and in that new life, and in the awakening time, they call it being born again, because in John's Gospel, he talks about you must be born again. And, and how many of you have mixed with Christians in Durham from other churches, and they say, oh, that lot of Emmanuel, they're born again Christians. There's no such thing. You're either born again or you're not. You're either a Christian or you're not. But, you know, we, we use those terms, don't we? And it's because we've got this derogatory term Christian and we've made something of it and we call ourselves by that, which was actually a mocking word. Instead of actually, and we were talking about this yesterday in the, in the Leaders' Day, that what we all are are disciples of Christ. What we're told to do is go out into the world and make other people disciples. Jesus never said, go out into all the world and find some Christians. Or, you know, go out into all the world, take hold of somebody and tell them, you know, you're now going to be a Christian. It was disciples. And disciples are people who are learners. In fact, if you were to translate scriptures today, where they talk about disciples, where Jesus says, go out into all the world and make disciples, you would never use the word. Because it's one of those words that doesn't mean anything today other than to Christians. What you'd use today, you'd say, go out into the world and make some apprentices. 
apprenticeships are sort of coming back in now, but they don't really carry the same weight as the old-fashioned apprentices. You know, if you were an apprentice to a cabinet maker a hundred years ago, you'd go there when you were about 12 years old, and you'd keep on trying to make bits of, of cabinet. You'd pass the tools, you'd clean the workshop, you'd live alongside the cabinet maker, the master cabinet maker, and you'd keep on working with that guy, doing everything that he wanted. You'd eat in his household, you'd live in his cellar in terrible conditions, and then when you got to about 21, you'd come up and you'd try and make a piece like the master made. And you'd make this cabinet or or piece of furniture just like the master could make. And it became known as your masterpiece. And at that point, you were no longer an apprentice. You'd become like the master. And when Jesus says, go into the world and make disciples, and when when we become, you know, the people who follow him, we become disciples. We become people who do anything and follow him and live with him and spend our lives just looking to what he does and saying, that's the way I'll go. I will follow that way. Sounds great, doesn't it? Except the cabinet maker that we're following didn't make a rosewood veneered mahogany sideboard In fact, the only bit of woodwork as a carpenter, and we know Jesus as a carpenter, don't we? It doesn't really mean carpenter. It really means sort of like building site bloke. But, you know, he built things. But he's not known for any of that. I mean, I, I don't... Can you imagine in a museum, if you went in and they said, here's a chair that Jesus built. It would be in an American museum because they're the only people who have the money to buy it. But if, can you imagine... And yet, if you go to Cyprus uh, or you go to the Middle East, you'll find the bit of wood that Jesus is known for is in every monastery. You know, there are more bits of the cross of Jesus than actually it would take to build the Ark of Noah around the world for people who claim to have the cross. There's There's one mountain monastery in Cyprus that claims to have the whole cross set in gold, uh, uh, which is, you know, pretty good. All that did was make some merchants in the Middle East at the time of the Crusades very wealthy, (laughs) gullible followers of the way, went and bought bits of wood claiming to be the true cross. Every altar of every cathedral, including Durham Cathedral, have bits of relics in there. I don't know whether Durham's got a bit of the cross. It's probably got a toenail of whoever was the founding saint. I don't know, but that's the kind of thing you get. Anyway, I digress. So... Our master that we follow is known for one piece of wood, and that's the cross. And the government health warning when you become a follower of the way, um, somebody should have warned Andy of this before he took this step today. The government health warning is that Jesus says, that's what you take up every day, and you follow me. And I want to read to you, just to make the sermon legal, we have to have some scripture. Um, I want to read to you from uh, Revelation to start with. And uh, this is Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. And this impacted me in the mid-90s at the time of the Toronto Blessing and things. I really got hit by these verses and convicted. In the mid-90s, I was a United Reformed Church minister. I was a chaplain in the Royal Air Force. 
Um, I was a church leader. I had gone to theology college. I'd studied theology. I'd been ordained. Um, I'd been saved in the Air Force when I was a navigator in the Air Force during the Falklands War. And I had been filled with the Spirit. And I was genuinely a Christian. But like Adiola, I'd been baptized when I was a baby. And I'd grown into a denomination, which was Ruth's denomination, so it's all her fault, at the United Reformed Church, uh, that didn't baptize believers. They stuck to baptizing babies. And if you'd been baptized as a baby, you couldn't be baptized any longer as a believer because you were baptized. And all through my Christian life, I felt there's something missing here. I was the minister of the church, and in Germany, we were in revival. We were seeing, we were talking uh, last night to John and Chris, and saying we were seeing 13 people a month on average for nearly four years saved, filled the Spirit, and baptized in the Spirit and in the water. It was in Air Force terms in a community of 2,000 servicemen and 2,000 family members and a few civilians. That is revival. Imagine a village of 4,000 people where 13 a month, every month, get saved. Yeah, it felt like revival. It was an amazing experience. And we'd baptize 13 people on average every month. And it, we'd been doing that for about two years. Um, and I had the head of a, a, um, a WEC Bible college come on our Alpha course. And they were people who didn't believe that the Holy Spirit moved today. And they came on our Alpha course, the, the principal of a, a World Evangelical Crusade Bible College. A senior theologian came on our Alpha course got filled with the Spirit and baptized in the Spirit. And so he became a friend. And I went to him one day and said, uh, can you come to our next baptismal service? And he said, yeah, I can do that. I said, I, um, my wife and I, you know, we feel we should be baptized. So he came along. We baptized 11 people that day, 12 people. And at the end of baptizing 12 people, I said to the congregation as we gathered around the skip outdoors that we used to baptize people in, um, got two more people for baptism. And that was quite common, like today, you know, if some of you might have come forward and said, I, I, I realize I want Jesus or I want baptism. Uh, and, and, and so they're all looking around who these two idiots were going to be that wanted to be baptized on the day. And it was Ruth and I, and we got baptized. As a minister of the church, it was quite a shock to the congregation. <laughs> It was the end of my time in the URC as well, because I had to say to the URC, I cannot be a minister in the URC really much longer, because I don't hold to what you teach. So within two years of that, we'd left the URC and ended up in the church we know in in Croydon, where we've been for the last nearly 21 years. And are about to leave, but we'll come back to that later. So this verse, back at the time when God was working on us, um, Alpha Course had just come out. Um, Freedom in Christ and Bondage Breaker Ministry had just really reached the shores of, 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 of Europe. Um, the Toronto Blessing was just, in, just happening. God was doing an amazing thing in the mid-90s. Some of you will have been at Toronto. Some of you will have been impacted by the Alpha. Some of you will have you know, been affected by what happened in, in the mid-90s to the church. You ain't saying nothing yet compared to what God is going to do in the 20s, I believe. But for us, that was significant. And one of the verses, this is the introduction to my sermon still. Yeah, what time do I finish? <laughs> quarter past. Oh, quarter past two. Uh, good. <laughs> There's no football today. It's fine. These verses, that God really grabbed hold of me. 
Um, and what he did through these verses and many other verses like them was actually say to me, are you really walking with me? Do you really believe the scriptures are talking about you and me? And it, I knew a lot of scripture. I preached regularly. I'd studied theology. But I don't think I'd ever taken the step to believe and dare to believe that Jesus had written these words for me. And he has, and he's written them for you. But these are the government health warning, okay, Andy? And I heard a loud voice in heaven, John says, saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And the accuser, the word accuser, in the original form, is Satan. So Satan has been... Right? Is that the ESV up there? It looks like it probably is. This is the ESV anyway. Um, it says, accuses them down. And they have conquered him, conquered Satan, by the blood of the Lamb. And we've been talking about that this morning, haven't we? We've been singing about that this morning. That Satan has been conquered. The work of the devil, the, the whole fall of creation and everything that went on in the Garden of Eden in, 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 in Genesis 3 has been dealt with. All of the work of the enemy has been dealt with by Jesus' death on the cross. The blood of the Lamb. We, you know, the Lord is a Lamb. The Lamb who was slain. That's what we're singing. I love singing that. It's, it's quite a, a juxtaposition, those two verses. The Lord's a lion. You know, roar! You've seen that advert for the England team for Aldi or Lidl's where you know, he roars, one of the players roars. I can't remember. But anyway, he's the lion, but he's also the lamb. The lamb that was slain. And so that slaying of Jesus on the cross, his masterpiece, that slaying of Jesus is what's defeated the enemy. And we love that. That's what evangelical Christians have celebrated. That's what all Christians have celebrated, really, since that time onwards. Some of you look excited by that. But it goes on. It says they've defeated by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And that's one of the things I learned back in the mid-90s, that my testimony mattered. Not when I got saved, you know, at the time of the Falcons War, this is what happened. But the testimony of believers is speaking out the truth of what God has said about you and me and declaring that out there to anyone and everyone who will listen, including the principalities and powers, the lost, the, the saved. Yeah, we encourage the brethren when we testify to what God has done. We, we do spiritual warfare with the, with the principalities and powers when we testify. We evangelize when we testify to what Jesus Jesus has done. When we speak out truth of these scriptures, that's what I learned in nine, the middle of the 90s. And that's what I changed my life, really. Again, I was born again again, really. I started to speak out the truth of scripture and believe it was for me. Those of you who are involved in the Freedom in Christ ministries, that's really what you do, isn't it? Those who have had a, a Freedom in Christ appointment or whatever, that's what you do. You just declare the truth over the lies of the enemy. And it defeats the enemy. So it was defeated on the cross. It's defeated in our daily lives when we declare the truth. So when you're feeling like you're a no good, rotten so-and-so, you, you know that actually that's not what I'm going to speak out. What I'm going to speak out is, you know, I have died. My, my life is hidden with Christ in God. I'm a disciple of Christ. I'm an apprentice. I'm a follower. I'm more than a conqueror. 
I'm seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. All authority has been given to Christ and therefore to me. You know, these are the things we speak out. And we know that. We see victory in, in, in one another's lives when we live our lives that way. And that's the first two parts of this Revelation passage, which just so impacted me back in the mid-90s. But it's only two-thirds of it. And I think this is the, the third that the church today, in the Western world particularly, is starting to get hold of. The reality of the third part And they've conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Some translations say they did not um, love their lives so much as to shrink from death. I love stories of great saints. Jim Elliot, you know, who in the 1950s, was it, I think, went to South America to a tribe that had never been reached before of cannibals. He went with some other young men from America. They trained for years. They prepared for years. They saved for years. They were waiting to go to reach the gospel to a, a people group who had never been reached. M- uh, Mission Aviation Fellowship plane was hired. They got on board. They flew to this part of was it Peru, I think? I can't remember where. Somewhere in South America. They landed and on the first night they were slaughtered on the beach. Jim Elliot said, he's no fool who tries to keep that which... He's no fool who loses that which he, which he can't keep to gain that which he can't lose. Or something like that. His wife, widow, went on to write about his life and and all he believed. And it's been instrumental in changing many lives. Well, the Victorian missionaries who got on board ships to go to parts of the world and they packed their belongings in coffins so at least they'd have something to be buried in and many of them never ever got off the ship before they died of diseases. They understood in that generation what it was not to love their lives so much as to shrink from death. We have got ourselves a problem in our church, in the Western world particularly, that we can't even love our coffee break or love our lives more than our coffee break. We've got into a place where we have missed one-third of what it is, the government health warning, when we become a Christian, when we become someone who follows the master, whose masterpiece was the cross, that we're told to take up every day and follow him. I don't think that God is going to say, leave Durham to you all, or go somewhere in the world where you're going to get martyred tomorrow. You, you're safe. I don't mean that. And, and praise God, and I believe that God is not going to put us in the, in the coming short time anyway into a place where Christians will be persecuted in that way. It's not about, actually, I'm going to go out and lose my physical life. It's actually just the way we live our life now as apprentices who actually do take up our cross and say, I don't want to be a Christian. I don't want to belong to this big religious movement. I want to live my life walking with Jesus. And I I don't want to be counting the cost all the time of every step as to say, is this going to be good for me, bad for me? Is this going to harm me? Is my career going to be hampered by this? Is my 
investment going to be hampered by this. I want to be someone who just walks with Jesus because that's what Christians are, apprentices. You know, the, the apprentice system came out of the Greek culture at the time prior to, to Jesus. The Greek culture was you went and lived with someone. Um, a, a group of boys would live with, you know, so, I don't know, um, the great mathematicians. Who was that Greek bloke? Um, Euclid, probably, yeah, or Pythagoras. One of those guys, anyway. They, you know, you, you went and you learned from them and you became what they were. Um, I was saying yesterday, you can, you can trace Christians, really, um, by who discipled them as to what their, that, what their mannerisms are. Preachers who, who hold up Bibles while they preach, you know, probably watch Lloyd-Jones preach. Uh, there's, there's a kind of thing where we, we do get discipled, and it, it's wonderful. And we're meant to be that way, but without counting the cost. And I was looking this morning at... Um, that passage where in Antioch, Christians were, um, you know, followers were, disciples were first called Christians. And it starts in the context of baptism. It says baptism, by this I mean baptism. And then it, and then it goes on for the next chapter in, in that passage in, in uh, Acts 11, shall I say. It goes on in that chapter to talk about suffering. If you look at the passage in Philippians where it mentions Christians, the passage is about suffering. If you look at that Revelation passage I just read, it's not loving our lives so much as to shrink from the, 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 the fact that there's, there's possibly suffering or even death. And the reason that we're stuck where we are in the Western church with this, I believe, is because we've forgotten what Jesus did when he died on the cross. We got into this thing that he died on the cross so I could become a Christian and I'll go to heaven when I die. But actually, being a disciple is about right now, living my life, walking with Jesus. One of the, in fact, the only time Jesus describes himself in the Bible. Anybody know that? The only time Jesus describes himself. He says, take my yoke upon you, for I'm gentle and humble. The only time Jesus describes himself, I'm gentle and I'm humble. But he says, take my yoke upon you. And that was in the context of the days when, again, you'd apprentice a young ox to an old ox. The way you trained your ox was to yoke it to an old ox. So the old ox that knew where to walk, to tread the whatever the ox was doing, plough the furrows, the old ox knew this was what your life was about. You yoked a new ox whilst it was kicking over and wanting to go everywhere and it would be yoked with a double yoke and you took that yoke onto the young ox and it learned how to live that life. And Jesus says, that's what I want for you. I don't want you to be called Christians and form a religion. You know, I don't want you to start doing things because you've always done them this way. I want you to be a people who follow me, who get yoked to me. And so if Jesus is walking this way, you get to walk that way, whether you want to walk that way or not, because you're yoked to him. I'll come back. <laughs> is that what your life is like, Emmanuel Church? Is that your life? Are you, are you saying, Jesus, I'm going to be yoked to you? 
Or are you saying, actually, what I'd quite like is, is, is a nice Sunday morning where I meet with my friends and then I'll go and do my thing during the week and I'll come back on Sunday and I'll do it all over again. Maybe I'll go to a midweek group. Maybe I'll do something else. I used to preach in, in the Air Force as a chaplain. I used to have a wing commander of a fighter squadron. He came to church once a month, religiously. And he said he wasn't a Christian that I know of um, and I don't think he ever became one in, in, in my knowledge of him at that time. He came and said, Padre! I like to come to church once a month, get told off, and then go off and do my life, and then I come back another month later, get told off again. It makes me feel good. And before we mock him too much, we can be that way. Being disciples is being locked in the same household as Jesus. Is being yoked to him. Is being walking with him. Um, and and what if he said tomorrow? And I, I'm, this isn't a prophetic word. What if he said tomorrow, actually, the, the guys that meet in this, this um, Durham centre, um, trying to read backwards through the glass, you know, um, I, I don't want you to be there anymore. I'm going to walk somewhere else tomorrow. Are you going to walk with me? How many of us would still be here next week? And how many of us would walk with him? It's a huge challenge. And we go, I couldn't possibly do that. I want to be with my friends. Hang on, you're not supposed to love your life so much just to shrink from death. Never mind shrink from not sitting next to your mates. Yeah, praise God he didn't say, let's all meet yesterday afternoon because I think he knows what would challenge us and we'd probably all watch the football. But you see, the, the, the problem is, is we've begun to see Christianity as this thing that we do right now, ready for the day when we go to heaven, and then it will all be lovely, and, and we'll, we'll, we'll all sit on clouds with harps and we'll have a good time. Jehovah's Witnesses score so many goals over Christians or nominal Christians because they knock on their door and they say, do you know where you're going to go when you die? And most Christians go, I'm going to go to heaven. And then JWs get open the Bible, even though their Bible's full of rubbish but they've still got enough of the real bible in there and they show christians that nowhere does it say you're going to go to heaven it says you're going to be on the new earth when jesus comes again and then christians go really there's a new earth (laughs) i'm going to go there i thought i was going to go to heaven because i'm living this terrible life now ready for the day when it will all be wonderful So i was going to bring with me one of my favorite sermon illustrations then i realized we're coming on the train and ruth wouldn't carry it which is a very, very, very long rope, climbing rope. Uh, and I found the longest rope I could find. Um, and what I like to do is I, I, I trail the rope off stage, as it were, um, and I have a massive pile of it in, and I have that, the rope in my, my hand. And I tell people, this rope is infinitely long. And I, and I pull 20, 30 feet out, and it keeps on going. And then I say, you know, I, we haven't got time to pull it all out, but it is infinitely long, I promise you. Uh, and that's your life. And it's not your life when you die. It's your life right now. It started. You live a life which goes on. Infinite is not the right word, is it? Before I get told off by mathematicians. goes on forever and ever and ever, which is not infinity. But anyway, um, you know, it is never ending. It is every new day is a new day. There's time. Do you know there's time when we, when we get to the new earth? There'll be days and nights. There'll be time. It's, it's not that we stop being in a place and stop being in a time. You were created for place and time. Only the Father is one who, who isn't in place and time. Jesus takes on place and time as God when he came to earth. 
And we will always be in place and time. On the new earth, we'll be on place and time. It will be a wonderful place to be. But we live in the light of that eternity that we're entering into. This life, and this is where I come back to my rope, my rope would have half an inch of red tape around the end. Imagine that I've got an infinitively long (laughs) rope. I hate having mathematicians in the congregation because you know what they think. They're all going, that's not quite the concept. And thank you. (laughs) And and just this little bit here has got red tape around it. That's your life right now until the day you die. From birth to final death. From life's first cry, as we just sang, is that tiny space. Everything that you're going through now, good, bad, indifferent, holy, Everything else is in that space compared to the eternity which is your life, which will go on and on and on with him. The Apostle Paul says in Scripture that he just everything, everything of life in that small small time is nothing. It's like a slight breath, a butterfly's flap of a wing, a tiny little seed blowing in the wind compared to eternity. And he said, therefore, I'm satisfied with everything. I'm confident that in in, in everything in this life, because one day, soon, I'm going to enter into that eternity with him on the new earth when he comes again in glory. Hallelujah. Two. Good, right. Um, That's what we are. When we take on our discipleship, it is an eternal discipleship. You don't get your masterpiece when you die and start living it. You'll continue as disciples. You'll continue learning. C.S. Lewis in The Last Battle says that heaven and eternity is like a book where this life has just been the title page and every day of eternity is like turning a new page in the book and learning something new. Because he is everything and you know, even with every day for the rest of eternity, we will never learn everything about him. And my mind is such that I'll probably forget it anyway. I'm sure I used to know more of the Bible than I do now. Do you ever think that? You think, I'm sure I used to... Oh, crikey. Thank heavens for computers. You know, Emmanuel Church, you are here for this fleeting, fleeting time. You don't need to count the cost in that tiny fleeting time. You don't need to shrink from death in that fleeting time. You don't need to be a people who see everything measured within that time. You know, John Bryan, one of our elders in our church, is an amazing preacher and he, he, two of his favorite things are to tackle the, the YOLO and the FOMO. You only live once and what's FOMO? I can't remember. Um, sorry? Fear of missing out. Thank you. Hannah. Hannah? Yeah. Fear of missing out. I met Hannah before. It wasn't a word of knowledge. <laughs> and, and John will bring those into his sermons all the time because it is the disease of today for all of us. It's not just the postmodern generation. It's for all of us now. It's if we don't get it in in this tiny bit or if we, if we don't get it right in this tiny bit. You know, but the Apostle Paul says, no, it's... It's eternal. It's seeing that in the light of the rope that goes on forever. Why would you worry about that little bit? And that's what the Apostle Paul says. That's what Jesus says. Why worry about today? You can do nothing about it. 
See, the great thing about what Andy has done, and by being baptized today, confirming that in that sense of, yes, I'm being buried to my old self, I'm being raised up with Christ. The great thing that, that he has got now is he's become a disciple in an eternal apprenticeship program where you can cock it all up as much as you like. Did he say that? Yes, he did. Where you will get it wrong so many times. Because do you know what? Apprentices do that. I, I did two apprenticeships when I was younger, um, before I joined the Air Force. One was an apprentice chemical electrical engineer, and one was an apprentice uh, in, in normal engineering. Uh, I didn't complete either of them, largely because I was so bad. <laughs> and <laughs> if you let me wire up someone's chemical engineering processes, you would see the largest explosion in the West Midlands where I used to live. I mean, I was just really not good at it. But they didn't sack me. I just chose not to continue. They kept working with me. I had this little red book that I had to keep writing down what I'd done wrong so that I could get it right next time and remember how to do it next time. And and this little red book just got bigger and bigger and bigger because there was so much that I used to get wrong. Those who looked on at followers of Jesus said, oh, they're little Jesuses, the derogatory term. Because you know what? As much as they tried to do it right, they got it wrong. And although they stood out in what they tried to do, and although people looked at them and went, oh, and some people would have been jealous of that, because they didn't get it perfectly right, they felt they could mock them. They felt they could dismiss them. They felt that actually, if that's what it's all about, trying to do good and, and getting it wrong, why bother? I can go and worship Zeus, or you know, and, and, and he doesn't come and tell me off. I can go to the orgy afterwards and feel great. You can get it wrong, Andy. You can get it wrong as much as you like, my friend. You can get it wrong time and time again. And if this church know that they're also fellow apprentices... They're just going to be people who help you fill in the little red book. And they're going to be people who go, do you know what? That's what I do as well. They're not going to be Christians. They're going to be apprentices. They're going to be apprentices who see all of their learning program at the moment in the light of this tiny little bit at the end of the rope but also in the knowledge that for all eternity I'm going to go on as an apprentice. But the good news is that when we get to that point when Jesus comes again, all of the things at the moment that drag me down, all of the things which are attached to this fragile physical body that I have now will be transformed in a blink of an eye. When the final trumpet sounds, that actually, although I will still be an apprentice, I will not have the devil on my back, the accuser of the brethren, because he will be finally thrown down. That's what that passage is about. Finally thrown down. Not just bound as he is now, but actually completely sent to the fiery pit. That I will no longer have that. I will no longer have my sinful flesh. I'll have the new body that, you know, Ruth thinks you'll sing like Dame Kiri Tikanawa in heaven. The pro- in, on the new earth. The problem is, so will we all. Some of us are a bit lower, but, you know. 
Do you believe that? You see, FOMO and YOLO don't really believe that. It's all about, well, I've got to get it all in now because it's about this life. And actually, I've got to protect this life. I've got to look after this life because I, I don't spend it all. And you, I hear Christians saying, you know, slow down a bit. Don't go so fast because you'll wear yourself out. Oh, so what? I would love to be worn out when Jesus comes again. <laughs> Wouldn't you? I would love for him to say, wow, I can't even keep up with you. Slow down, you're yoked to me. But that's not what he's going to say to me. We have to take seriously something that in other generations and in other parts of the world, Christians have understood, followers of Jesus have understood, that we don't love our lives so much as to shrink from death. And you know, the, the, one of the reasons we don't do that is because we worry what will we be like when we face that challenge. If we were Jim Elliot and there's some guy coming at you with a spear, you know, my guess is that's quite scary. I've been to war three times. I've crashed in aircraft three times. It's quite scary. It's okay to be scared. It's okay to worry what you might be like when something scary happens to you. Some of you will have been through much scarier things. If you've been in the car with my wife, then, you know. Um, <laughs> she doesn't drive me to drink. She drives me home from drink, so that's okay. Um, <laughs> do you know, you don't know what God will give you that day. God gives you grace for that day. That's what he says. Don't worry about tomorrow, yeah, what you're going to receive. Just, just concentrate on today. Because God today will give you what you need. You know, I often think, I wonder how I will die. Not often. Occasionally. Usually after six beers or something like that. Yeah. I wonder how I'll die. And you think, oh, I hope it's not some lingering, painful death. And I used to say to people, I have no fear of death, but I don't fancy dying. I don't say that anymore. Now I just say, no, actually, he will give me what I need every day of that, whatever the dying is. Because it's on that little red bit at the end of the rope. If we live our lives focused on avoiding death, which our generation does. I'm, I'm all for medical advancement. I'm all for scientific advancement. I'm all for things that will, you know, cure cancer and all that. Uh, uh, but actually, in the end... Nothing will stop us dying. Even if we manage to get back to pre-fallen physical life, Methuselah was 999. It means some of us haven't got long to go even then. We will all die unless Jesus comes back before the end of this sermon. In our congregation by now, there's at least three or four people who have gone to sleep. And if all the people who ever went to sleep in one of my sermons were laid end to end, they'd be a lot more comfortable. (laughs) Just want to finish, just to remind you that grace is given you today for today. Fear of missing out? No. You only live once? No. 
we live for eternity right now. And we have grace for this moment. You have grace to suffer this sermon. You have grace to suffer what happens on Wednesday night when England beat Croatia, which they're going to anywhere or not. You have grace. And the, the problem is, you're an apprentice. And when I was an apprentice, the master engineer who ran the workshop that I was in didn't tell me everything. Because it would have needed me to sat there for about 14 years listening to him telling me, and I would have forgotten it all. He didn't give me all the tools I needed because I wouldn't know what to do with them and I would probably slice my hand off trying to use them. He didn't uh, give me jobs to do that were beyond me. He knew what I was capable of and gave me those jobs even though he knew I might make a mess of them. He was a grumpy old so-and-so, but he was a good master engineer. Jesus is not a grumpy old so-and-so and he's more than a good master. He is the perfect teacher. He created you. He knows you. He knows your beginning and your end. He knows your eternity and he gives you what you need today not the stuff that you'll need when you face the final curtain. Not the stuff that you need when you face, what would I do if somebody says this to me? What will I do if this happens because I'm a Christian? What will happen if the government says that we're going to close this church down because you won't marry gay people? I don't know, maybe you do marry gay people. No, I know, Alan, you don't marry gay people. Um, you know, what, what will I do if you spend your whole life worrying about what you will do instead of living your whole life knowing that he will give me because I'm a disciple and he's a great master? You, if I could do away with the term Christian, I really would. We are followers of him who is able to immeasurably more than we ask or imagine. Amen? And because of that, we do what he tells us. We live our lives as he tells us to. We never stop meeting together. We never, ever stop breaking bread when we come together at certain times as the church understands it. We never stop baptizing believers. We never stop praising him. We never, and that doesn't mean that you know, when you get to eternal life, you're going to spend all day singing choruses. Sorry, worship band. Don't think that'll happen, but you know... <laughs> Could get, my arms would ache after a while, I think. That'd be, uh... And so we're going to move into a time now, something Jesus told us to do. He told us that when we gather together to break bread and to pour the wine out, because somehow, more than you could ever work out for yourself, little apprentices, little Jesuses, more than you could ever understand, he says, I'm going to be in that in a different way to I mean anything else I do with you. And so Keith's going to lead us through that. And and let's enjoy, little apprentices, let's enjoy what the Master does in us. Amen? Amen. Amen. Just going to close now, um, but before we do, we are going to... uh just to remember what Jesus did for us when he died for us on a cross. It's a, it's a fitting way to end what has been a fantastic morning as we've, uh, as we've gathered together and as we've seen you know, people's lives changed and as we've, we've heard from Paul. Uh, I do just want to remind you that if you're sitting here and you've not been baptised, you have not missed the chance. The pool, the pool is still full. It may have cooled a little bit, but you are more than welcome if you would like to come up and get baptised. Could we have the band back whilst we, uh, whilst we break bread, please? Thank you.
So Lord, I want to thank you for your sacrifice. I want to thank you that you gave of yourself for us. Lord, I want to thank you that, you know, if it weren't for you, it would be a very different man standing here. But I want to thank you, Lord, that because of what you did on the cross, you have given me and you have given each and every one of us life. Lord, I want to thank you that as I, just hold on, as I break this, it's a representation, it's just a sign of what you did on the cross, that you died on the cross and that you were broken physically on the cross for each and every one of us. And Lord, as we take the wine, that we remember that it was your blood that was poured out. It is through your blood that we have the forgiveness of sins. It's through your blood that we have wholeness, that we have life eternal. And Lord, I want to thank you for your blood, for your sacrifice. Thank you, Jesus. And so I want to invite you to come up. And we've got three stations around the room. I want to invite you to come up and just to break bread and thank Jesus for all that he has done for each and every one of us. Thank him for the life that he gave for us, that we may know life. And then it's fitting again that we've got everyone, Chesley Street and Durham here today as we break bread. Because also we're affirming that we are a family of believers together. That we are one man before Christ, before God. We are here as a family and we're going to break bread together as a family. So can I invite you now to come and break bread? Ben, if you'd like to lead us, thank you.
while Paul, while Paul has been preaching, this has reminded me of something that God has did in my life over the last two years. And I, some of you have heard some of this before, but I just want to confirm what he's been saying. About two years ago, I discovered that there was something wrong with my insides and I went to the hospital and I had various tests and they kept coming back negative. And it got to the stage where I started thinking about, I have various good friends who at about my age had had stomach cancer or other similar diseases and who had died early. And I got to the point where there were not very many options left from the hospital and I had to face maybe this was going to be me and there was something that was a very profound experience and I realized that I had been doing what Paul has been talking about must stay alive at all costs and I had to get to a point where I trusted God that if this was it this was it and he was good And he was faithful, and he had a good plan for me. Now, it turned out to be amoebic dysentery, and as one of my friends said, well, when you're praying for amoebic dysentery as the good option, you know that it isn't so good after. (laughs) And actually, some antibiotics all killed it. But actually, that was a profound experience, and that started a process of uprooting things in my life. And I've been a Christian for decades, and, and that released me so I can now sing All I Am is Yours in a new way and a different way. And so if there are things that are holding you back in your life, I just pray to God that he won't take you through that sort of experience to get rid of them. But he wants to get rid of them because he wants you to be able to sing All that, that I all that whatever that we just sang all, all I am is yours and so I just want to leave that with you we now have tea and coffee served outside but just give yourself give your all to Jesus because he is worth it